Would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, which is page 720 if you're using the Bibles in the seats. Mark chapter 8, we're finishing up our series uh, we've entitled Remarkable, uh, where we've kind of walked through the um, chapter 5 through 8 of the Gospel of Mark. I'll start us off with uh, just uh, something to get our minds moving. Here's a geography quiz for you. Start real easy. What is the most northern state in the United States? Alaska, right? Not Maine, Alaska. Good Good job. What is the most western state? Alaska. Okay. What is the most eastern state? Alaska. Yeah, the Aleutians crossed the dateline. It's pretty neat, huh? Most northern, most It's not the most southern, so uh, that's kind of a fun question. Yeah, this is really just an excuse to get to this one. I read this on a trivia pursuit card when I was like 10, 12 years old. What state has the lowest, highest point? Okay. Before you answer, I didn't hear it. What state has the lowest, highest point? So the highest point of this state, who cares about this, right? I do right now, but otherwise I don't care about this. But the highest point of this state is lower than the highest points of all the other states. It is the 50th highest point state. You know what the answer on the card was? Delaware. There is a place called Ebright Azimuth. It's up uh, northern Delaware. We're here. I mean, uh, go up Naaman's Road. There's a little plaque. It says Ebright Azimuth. You need to pack appropriately if you want to make this climb. You will need a car. Uh, you can pretty much take a ride off of Naaman's or, or left. I don't know exactly where. But Actually, though, the reality is the answer is wrong. The card was wrong, and it's Florida. I used to wonder, how does Florida? And so I looked it up, and to my chagrin, we didn't even win that one. Uh, It's Florida. But uh, nonetheless, uh, Florida has the lowest, highest point. Now, I I mention that because I had a conception of the Gospel of Mark uh, that's followed me for a very long time in my life, and I largely, in seminary, I think, is how it was cemented itself, which was Mark was a junior league gospel. That was my attitude. I mean, I like it. I liked it because you have to like it. It's the Bible. But it's the shortest gospel. Uh, And I equated short with primitive. It was the earliest gospel by all accounts. So almost significant majority of the content in the Gospel of Mark is in the Gospel of Matthew or Luke. In other words, Matt, you can read it in Mark, and then you can go read it in Matthew, and you get more information. It's Mark plus. That kind of made me feel like Mark was superfluous a little bit. These are confessions. Uh, I was, I was taught that Mark was a, a gospel of action. You know, that was a teacher's way of trying to be helpful is to give labels. The label actually did harm to me. I kind of thought of Mark as like a, a Marvel comic. 
It's the action gospel. You know, if, if you want to get real scholarship, you go to Luke, because he's a doctor. Or if you want to know, you know, how the gospel is preached to the Jews, you'd go to Matthew, because it was written to a Jewish community. Or if you wanted the highest form of just literary excellence, you'd go to John. That was just the way I, I viewed it. Um, I mention all that to you because it, though, though that was entirely incorrect, and this sermon series actually has been very freeing for me to joyfully repent of some of those mindsets. But today, uh, I actually, coming into this weekend, uh, I've, it was so hard. It was very hard for me to embrace the passages we're going to embrace this morning. Mark eight twenty two through 26 I was going to skip, to be quite honest. I was not going to preach it because I saw no point in preaching it. Um, again, it, we're preaching it today. It's being preached today, and it's, it's wonderful. But I didn't see it that way. I, I, I saw it as a healing testimony kind of shoehorned in between two very notable passages with no apparent connection, no apparent reason. And not only that, it's problematic. It's... This little passage, if anything, is testimony to the historicity of Scripture because why would you put this in here? You're gonna, there's a problem in here that makes this kind of, makes the normal person do that about Jesus. So I was frustrated by that. And then what follows is one of the high points in in the Gospel of Mark, I'd say the second highest, right? It's the second highest point in the, the climax on the way to the death and resurrection of Christ, which is the climax. But the Peter confessing Christ Jesus as Lord signifies a turning point in this entire book. Up to this point in the book, the Gospel of Mark primarily presents the ministry of Jesus. So the stuff that Jesus did is chapter 8 and earlier, healings, miracles, all at wonders, those sorts of things. That's pretty much one through eight. At this point, at the conf- Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the gospel shifts to an emphasis on what does that mean? So the first half of Mark, what's been given to us is kind of the evidence about Jesus And then at last we get an answer about Jesus. This is really the first time it's being dealt with. And then after this is understanding the implications of that. This is a really high point, uh, Mark 8, 27 through 30. And yet, it's four verses and Matthew says more. I mean, those of you who are somewhat familiar with the stories of the Bible, you know the passage in Matthew, not the one in Mark, because Matthew's section's twice as long and says things that we often like to remember. Like this, when Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says, uh, this didn't come from you, Peter. And then he names him Peter at that moment. And you will be the rock. And on this rock, I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You've heard that before? Not Mark, Matthew. This is Peter's gospel. And it's in Matthew. So, uh, is this the dilemma we have today? Are we staring uh, at the Lord from the lowest, highest point in the Gospels? Is the feeling a little bit. 
And I don't think so. I have, in this you know, past two months, these two or three months, just reading Mark again and again, I have come to re, uh, believe that short does not mean simple. Short can mean eloquent. And that's Mark. Th- he, this book is, I'm just saying this, if you're going to go back and study, if you arrive in a place in Mark and goes, why is that there? And it jolts you, I am telling you right now, there's something awesome that just that's hiding in there and keep studying it because he's eloquent. He's eloquent in his arrangement. He does not shoehorn anything in. And in trusting in that, for two weeks now, I've been coming back to this passage that I was not going to preach, and then it's blown up and it's become wonderful. And, uh, and even so, even if we are staring at the Lord from the lowest, highest point, is there a bad view of God? I don't think so. You know what I mean? If I can see God any which way, I'll count myself fortunate. So, uh, but here, I, I don't think we are. I think we, I think it's a really, Jesus has done a really neat thing and Mark was good to see it. Let's look at Mark eight twenty two to 26. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now the story here is, it feels initially pretty independent from anything around it. And it's pretty non, not, pretty unremarkable uh, in, in the fact that we really haven't seen then we're not seeing anything new. Jesus has healed before. And he's done a lot. By the time we're in Mark 8, Jesus has done a lot bigger things a lot more times than this. I mean, we see that he leads them out of the village. I don't know if that, while I don't know exactly why he did that, it's not mysterious to us. It shouldn't be mysterious by this point. There's plenty of reasons why Jesus might have done that. He's already displayed in, in this gospel um, a carefulness about not undermining his teaching with s- miracles. The moment he does miracles, the, the, turns into a mob who wants miracles. So then he has to go from town to town. And so a lot of times he would say, don't tell anybody about this. Or he would try to do it on the down low or in private so that it wouldn't get in the way of his ministry. That was, I mean, that could be the reason. Another reason could be that Bethsaida had no faith. And it's possible that Jesus had shaken the dust of this town off his feet. There's commentary in other Gospels. At one point in Matthew, Jesus pronounces a woe over Bethsaida for their lack of faith. So it's possible that because there's people of faith who bring this man to him, Jesus is going to be generous and heal him, but he is not doing it in that city, that village, because he's no longer doing ministry there. That's possible. It's possible that he wanted to heal the man outside of the city that the man himself, so the man himself is not a spectacle 
It is a person, after all. There's any number of possibilities. I, just, I don't think it's mysterious. I just think it's, it's pretty unremarkable. What is a little bit remarkable is also, uh, the word I might use is problematic. I'm using that word uh, to ally myself with some of you here who see this and see problem. The fact that he could not heal the man the first time. Let me just say it that way. Is that, I don't know if that's the way to say it. That may be the way you're thinking it. What went wrong? <laughs> Maybe that's what you're thinking. Did Jesus cast the wrong spell? Was he not enough? None of the other gospels include this narrative. I mean, so they, all the other gospels are bigger and have more in them, but they leave this story out. Matthew has the entirety of the eighth chapter of Mark in it, uh, though with more commentary. So it is the feeding of the 4,000. It has the Pharisees demand a sign. It has the leaven of the Pharisees in Herod. And it has Peter confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. And it has the narratives afterwards. Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. It does not have this narrative. One commentary writer that I read, and I like this guy, but he said clearly this miracle required extra exertion by Jesus. Do you see that? Does Jesus have to really spit the second time? And by the way, the spit, it feels a little strange to us. Saliva was considered to have healing properties, so it was often used in, in healing. Kind of like if you cut your finger, you stick it in your mouth, right? Um, it, so it was not that unusual to them, okay? Kind of like anointing a head with oil that had uh, he considered to be medicinal in some ways. So it was just part of the cult. Jesus is healing in their language is what's happening, Okay. But does he have to really hawk a loogie the second time? I mean, what? where's the exertion? I don't see the exertion. Nor do, nor do I ever in my mind conceive, conceive of this man's problem seems a little unique to me, I guess is what I mean to say. Do you, if you take your glasses off, see trees talking to you? Have you ever gone to Costco or wherever, Pearl Vision, to get your eyes checked, and the optometrist says, here, try these on. How do they work? And you say, we really like the frames, but the people look like trees. Have you ever, anything like that, any kind of substitutionary noun, the person looks like a cash register, the person looks like Monday. Do you ever think to say anything like that? I can think of like two or three adjectives that I use with the eye doctor. Blurry, fuzzy. I got two. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is unique. And to think he's exerting. This comment, this Exertion, this is speaking about the man who raised Lazarus from the dead with a word. A word. 
Jesus was asleep in a boat, and a storm that was threatening to overturn it, they rouse him, and he says, be still. And it calms. That's the same Jesus. The one who multiplied the bread to feed 5,000, did it again to feed 4,000. The one who has healed people from afar without going. Same Jesus. I, just, I don't feel like I'm supposed to think that this guy's eyes were worse than that. But, but we don't understand this guy's eyes. Or Jesus didn't understand them. I think there's two problems here. I think there's two needs of healing. Two different problems. I did some homework. I'm not a medical guy. So I stayed in the Holiday Inn, and here's what I learned. That and Wikipedia, that's all you need. Sight is the product of two things. The sight that when you, when you and I say we see something, okay, two things are actually happening. One, your eyeball is apprehending the object, okay? So light is reflecting off the object. That light is entering your eye. That eye is accumulating the information and and sending it down the optic nerve to the brain, okay? That part is the first step of seeing. The second step of seeing has nothing to do with the eye. It has everything to do with the brain. What does the brain do when it receives that information? How does the brain understand that as any meaningful picture? How does the brain associate that vision with an object? It's an entirely different Entirely different problem. Entirely different physiology. I was curious to know, are there any cases where people see things but cannot associate them with what, what actually is? There is actually, there's actually a case. Not a case, but a condition. It's called, and I'll only say this once, associative visual agnosia. I'll say it twice. Associative Visual, like agnostic, someone who cannot associate things they see. And it is often due to brain trauma, like stroke or an accident. There's places in our brain that have categories for visual identification. So a lot, sometimes if someone has this condition, an entire category of sight, associational sight, is not available to them. Like faces, they could see faces and not recognize. I don't know who you are, I'm sorry because that part of their brain is damaged. They can see you, identify you as a person. The moment you would speak, you'd go, oh, Fred, how are you doing? Because the problem is not with the voice and ear. The problem is only with their sight. So they can can accumulate enough information through the other tactile, the rest of their sensory system to figure out who you are, but their eyes are not helping. They know you're a person, they just don't know who you are. Or other categories, the animate objects from inanimate objects. They could see a car, not know, is it a living thing or a dead thing? Just can't know. Turn the car on, they go, oh, it's a car. Because they hear it. And they smell the exhaust. Now, I'm not... Uh, well, here's a phrase. This is a phrase that I thought was helpful. That condition is called perception stripped of meaning. Failure to register semantic details with an object. Give any meaningful details to the object. Now, I am not trying, I am the last person to diagnose anyone. Never come to me about an illness. I'm the last person, and I'm certainly not going to diagnose somebody 2,000 miles away. I simply want to suggest, I'm highlighting 
that there may, there's very likely been two problems here. One is that the man cannot see, and the other is that the man cannot associate or understand the things he's seeing. And I believe that Jesus wants us to see the difference. There's two problems. You think you see, but you may not know what you're looking at. You take that idea and you put it between what went before and what comes after and it turns into be eloquent. So the eighth chapter, the feeding of the 4,000 we talked about last week, there's a picture of how people follow there and then the Pharisees who are hard-hearted in their unbelief and then you have the disciples who are in the boat with Jesus, who follow Jesus, who participated in these miraculous acts and walked with him in faith and certainly know him very well and they forget their meal and they panic. To which Jesus says something to the effect of be careful of the unbelief because the unbelief of the Pharisees is contagious. That's pretty much what he says. Watch out. They don't, they don't understand and they don't get it and they still are obsessing over this missing food that they're going to go without and what went wrong to which Jesus says in the 17th verse, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive and understand? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When we fed the 5,000 and we took up the extras, how many baskets did we have left over? And they said 12. And the 4,000, after feeding the 4,000, how many baskets were left over? Seven. Do you not yet understand? Do you know who's in the boat with you? You see me, but do you know me? I'm not asking if you can see me, he's saying. I'm asking if you actually know who you're with. They have an associational problem. Look at the, the verse that follows. I can't believe I was going to skip this. And Jesus went to his disciples with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? You see this? <laughs> and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You see, Jesus' interest, his interest in the 20, verses 27 through 30 is when people see me, those who have seen me and seen what I've done, what conclusions are they coming to? Am I just a tree walking around? Am I, what am I? Do they see me clearly? In the, gospel, in the Gospels, and particularly here in Mark, since we're studying Mark, uh, the subject of who Jesus is has been a conversation of the crowd before. People wonder who he is. 
Even the disciples, right? When he does calm the storms, you remember what they say? Who is this? Who is this? No one has ever, oddly enough, no one has ever recognized him as the Messiah. Did you notice that's not one of the options? Who do the people say that I am? Isn't it a little interesting to you that Messiah is not option four? Why not? They had, by this point in Jewish history, they had such entrenched notions about what the Messiah, Messiah is Hebrew, the Greek word is Christ, the English phrase would be the anointed one or the chosen one. So all same idea, okay? By this point in Hebrew tradition, they had such an entrenched notion about what the sent, chosen, anointed one of God would be. They thought it would be this conquering king who would liberate Israel from uh, the, the control of the empire that would establish him as a physical earthly kingdom. They had, they had grown just caught up in that idea. So much so that to, they cannot even associate. The average person cannot see Jesus do the things he does and make the right association. What they want from God is not what they've received from God, even though what they've received from God is what they need from God. But they can't see it. With the exception of John the Baptist, and even there I put an asterisk, no one recognizes him as the Messiah during his ministry. The demons do. (laughs) The people don't. In the first chapter of of Mark, Jesus heals a demon-possessed person. You know what the demon says? I know who you are, Holy One of God. After he heals the demoniac, the demon flees. You know what the people say? What kind of teaching is this? See the difference? Demon says, I know who you are, Holy One of God. And they say, how'd he do that? In the third chapter, Mark accounts for another exorcism of a demon. And the demon there says, you are the son of God. And in the same narrative, about a little bit down in his ministry, he says he's teaching, his family says to Jesus, you are out of your mind. And the Pharisees in town say, you are a son of the devil. In the fifth chapter of Mark, when Jesus is healing the man from the demon called Legion, the man rushes up before Jesus, bows down. Why does he bow down and says, what have you to do with me, son of the most high God? A little bit later, on the other side of the sea, his hometown says, aren't you just the carpenter, the son of Mary? If anything, you don't even have to believe in Jesus today. Like, that ain't the requirement to appreciate our radical ability to not understand God is worth just appreciating. Like, I, I may invite you to believe today, but I certainly I want to cajole you into honesty Jesus turns to the apostles and says, well, who do you say that I am? You know, he's never asked them that before. 
in thinking about this, I have to remark of the patience of Christ in this case. He doesn't do this on the first day. He doesn't yell out to the fishermen, right? Come, I'll make you fishers of men. Who do you think that I am? He doesn't do that. He doesn't feed the 5,000, turn to them and say, who do you think that I am? He doesn't turn to them in the boat after he, sees, after he says, be still. And they say, who is this? He doesn't say, I'll tell you who this is. I'm the Messiah. He doesn't even answer the question. I mean, it may have not been directed towards him, but he, he waits. He waits until they have enough to answer. You know, I mean, by this point, the disciples have seen enough. Does he need to go heal or feed 6,000 people? What would you gain by that? Does he need to heal another blind person? What, what's the gain? Another lame person needs to walk? Another, another Pharisee needs to be corrected? Another spirit needs to be addressed? Uh, uh, do other elements of the created order need to bow beneath the power of Jesus Christ to get us over the hump? Or this, Jesus, what else needs to be done? There's been enough action and time and Jesus proclaiming the good news, saying things that we don't like to hear that dive so deep into our gut and we know they're true and we want to deny them. Jesus just says them. Turn the other cheek. Ah, we hate it and we know it. Forgive. They've been beneath his ministry. They've seen his works. They've seen his, heard his teachings. They've followed him. They've had their own sinful spirits confronted by Christ and cared for in Christ and brought along in Christ. I mean, what needs to happen? Jesus waits and waits and waits and waits. And now in his ministry, he turns and says, what are you going to do with all that? Who am I? Who am I? Who is he? What else, does he need, what else does he need to do? You cannot go to the tomb undecided. Let me show you something interesting. And this is beyond, this is the next, next time we come to Mark. So four years from now when we pick back up in the eighth chapter. Um, you'll see, even Peter, right, this... This problem of perception and association, <laughs> seeing and not fully seeing, it follows us, right? We don't just get to the right answer and then we're done. So Peter says, you're the Christ, right? He gets the $64,000 question. He's a hero. Good job, Peter. Here's a new name. I'm, you, you, what you win is the church. So you'd think he's arrived in the same narrative, we're not even out of the conversation and says, and Jesus began in 31 to teach that the Son of Man must suffer things. So he's saying, I have to suffer and be rejected. To which Jesus, or Paul, Peter says, what are you, crazy? He rebukes the Messiah. He who said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the Most High God, turns around and corrects him. Don't do that. He still doesn't see. Even if you follow Jesus, you may have flannel graphed this story since you were four years old. 
I'm not asking if you know who he is. I'm asking if you know who he is. With this notion in us that there are places in our spirit, places in our soul, that even, even if he is our Lord and Savior, he may not be Lord of that. He may not be Lord of that. We may have not invited him in there, or we may not have been able to apprehend, conceive that he's Lord of that. Why is it that we who follow the Most High God are anxious people? Why is it we who follow the God of creation are materialistic people? Why is worship a chore? if we know so much about him. Who is he? I'm gonna leave, we'll close the series with that. We'll close the day with that. Who is he? Who do you say he is? You, you may know who he is and not want him to be who he is because you, I want to live this way and he's calling me that way. But it doesn't mean I don't ask you the question. I mean, you may not want him to be Lord because you, have, you want to go this way. And I would say, you, if that's the case, you need him all the more. You need him double. Because he doesn't, it's not these things he's worried about. It's the heart in you that's pointing in this direction he wants. Your prayer should be, Lord, help me to want the right things. Save me from the things I want. Who is he? This, this morning, I'm going to close with some prayer, but I, this is going to be an invitation. I, I don't do this often, but even Jesus sometimes sits down and says, who do you say that I am? So I want to ask you, who do you say that he is? And you know, I'll be here while we sing. I'll be down there. Uh, I, want, I want to be there. I want to challenge you with the question. You may have been here, you know, just to let you float along in our fellowship thinking that uh, God's going to just bundle all of us up and take us would be error on my part and sin. Who do you say he is? I want to invite you to that answer. Let's pray and uh, seek the Lord. Lord, you, you have made testimony. You've had testimony preserved of the things you've done upon which, Lord, we can add testimony of what you've done, Father, um, through the way you and the Holy Spirit have ministered and saved and healed in the lives of so many people around us, Lord. We, we have no dearth of evidence to make this question appropriate. Father, I lift up each person here. Lord, we even see, and I'm thankful so much that you called imperfect people like Peter to see we can be right and in the very next moment wrong. We can be right and still need help. We can pray like the man prayed, Lord, I believe, help my own belief. But Lord, the question does come to us, who do we say you are? Lord, I pray we would respond.